The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. <laughs> Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Deborah Galanos is an Australian actress of Greek heritage and a National Institute of Dramatic Art acting degree graduate. She has appeared in many theatre, television and film roles and is best known for her role as Dr Meredith George in ABC's Children's Hospital. However, since 1990, most of her work has been in the theatre and through years of touring has performed on most stages all over Australia. Deb recently completed a season of the stage adaptation of Anne Deverson's Tell Me I'm Here. The adaptation by Veronica Nadine Gleeson was presented as part of Belvoir Theatre's 2022 season. Other work on the Belvoir stage includes Stop Girl, The Boom Cack Panto and 25A's Son of Biblos. From October 23rd to November 6th, she appears in Danny Ball's The Italians, with a cast of eight playing over 18 Italian characters, including the Madonna, Lady Gaga and Anthony Albanese. The Italians is sure to be one of the most outrageously funny shows of 2022. Here's my chat with actor Deborah Galanos. A rabbit hole. Rabbit hole. Which we would because we go on off on tangents being actors. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just so much that floods through the head, isn't there? It's that, true. That sort of, oh, we must talk about that. We must talk about I that. I know, right? And all the Whopper kids I um, come across now, I always say, do you know Peter Rise? Was he, you know, do you, did you know him? Do you, was he there when you, obviously they've all, you know, all these new grads that have been, I know we don't, but I said, yeah, no, it's a really good school. <laughs> Um, and I say to Allegra often, she's lucky to have you there as a trained actor, music theatre person in a proper, coming out of a proper degree program for, you don't get that. No, not a lot. At all. No. Really, they're just all, not that they're just educated in a, in a Bachelor of Education, but it's not the same as having that lived experience, I think. It's funny that uh, you should ask what graduates have they heard of someone and be the same who I said deny to graduates. Oh, do you know Deb Galanos? Oh, yeah. We were only yeah. there for three years. I know, right? And paths really cross. And there's photos on the wall, but you know, they only put up the photos of Kate and, you know, Hugo, and it's very funny. 
But no, it's good. I mean, it's nice to have an affiliation to old college. And they're all really um, great these days, thank God, I think. There's a training institution? Yeah. yeah. It'd be hard to tell, you know, to sort of pick one over the other, I think. But it's the, the unfortunate thing that, that, that uh, I mean, there are those wonderful schools, VCA, NIDA, WAPA, yeah, Queensland. Yeah, um, Q, QUT. Oh, my gosh. Is that uh, still going? Yep, I believe so. I believe so. But where do these graduates go? What's, what's, what work is there available for them? There's in the an industry? oversupply of actors mm. and creators in the industry. But, you know, then you're encouraged to create your own work, and I think that's a great thing. And then, you know, you go into other things. I think it's just valuable training for just life skill stuff, being an actor. Oh, great, yeah. The, the, I've got uh, lots of. Um, people who are in my year who have never really ever acted afterwards since graduating and they've yeah, gone right. on to do other things in, in theatre administration or promotion or just gone off and, and embraced motherhood or something. Yeah, I've got that in my year too. A guy that works for Deloitte's, he's a, he's a consultant to Deloitte's on management, people management and, um, you know, um, implementing different changes within the business and things like that. He's a corporate guy. And he was a great actor, but from WA. Um, yeah, it's a great skill to sort of transfer over into lots of different disciplines, I think. And it should be compulsory. Yes, rather than um, STEM, it should be STEAM. It needs to be the, <laughs> arts, the arts component. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. I don't know why they do that. I'm going to um, just put that a little bit closer like to that. you. <laughs> STEAM is good. STEAM is very good. Well, Yasu, Deb. Yasu, Peter. <laughs> Thank you for those uh, gorgeous croissants that got us started today. You're very welcome. Is there a Greek equivalent to a croissant? Oh, a a Greeks, bre- breakfast pastry? Bre- Greeks love bread at any time of the day. Um, it's not sourdough, unfortunately, which is much better for your gut. Um, but, yeah, they love rolls and um, pastries, like but, but, but more savoury stuff, I guess. In the morning, you'll find street vendors in, in Athens selling spanakopita and tiropita, which is spinach pie and, and cheese pie. And they're normally huge triangles, but they're coated in oil. Mm. Um, but they're delicious. Oh, yeah. Spanakopita is yeah, one yeah. of my favourites. Oh, I'll remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember driving by, I was calling Peter, spanakopita downstairs. Uh, so funny. Yeah. Now, so how does an actor of Greek heritage wind up in a play called The Italians? That's a very good question. <laughs> I did fight, um, or fight, I had an argument with the um, producer, director, creators of the piece, and I, I was happy to, I, I do a lot of uh, script development. I seem to do a lot of script development. I love doing it. I love working with new artists and new writers, um, developing story, and that's what I was doing with this, just helping them, you know, round a table, discussing plot twists and things and character stuff and um, and out of that and I was doing Tell Me I'm Here at the time upstairs at Belvoir and out of that they said well we'd like to offer you the role and I went but I'm not Italian you know we're currently in this very much you know um, cancel culture uh, and so I was very much aware of you know offending anybody by not I am not Italian by playing an Italian uh, so they said, no, no, well, you're a good fit and, you know, it's sort of that whole European feel in this play and it's about celebrating our ethnic heritage. 
And I must say, Deb, you'd, you'd seem to have cornered the market in European mothers <laughs> with uh, Lady Tabuli and Son of Biblos, which were Lebanese families. Absolutely, mm. yeah. That's that. Similarly, I've worked with James. I've worked with James quite a lot on script development. Um, you know, from the germ of an idea, and he's developed a story. And he's a prolific writer, so he's always throwing scripts at me, going, "Can you read this? Can you read that?" So out of that. Um, again, I um, he, he wanted me to be involved in the project that ended up going to the stage for Tabuli and for Biblos. And I've read a couple of other things for him at the um, Playwrights Conference uh, conferences. So, um, yeah, I, I love his work. He's, 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 a, he's a wonderful writer. And, again, I'm not Lebanese, but my mother was born in Egypt. And we have a whole side of our family, I think, we feel that we do have this sort of Middle Eastern kind of flavour because around the, the turn of the century, the previous century, there was a lot of, you know, war and, and you know, people were, were invading spaces all over sort of the Middle East and, you know, Asia Minor basically. And a lot of Greeks from that part of Greece, which is the eastern side of Greece, fled all over the world and my mother's father's family were originally from Cyprus but even that area was very sort of Turkish you know Middle East I guess so we have a whole arm of the family that we haven't explored yet that's and I feel very connected to that part too because my mother's family is very close and um, they migrated to Egypt for my grandfather to get work on the canal the building of the canal and that was like a melting pot of so many different cultures and languages um and i remember my mother she came out to australia when she was 10 i think so she was very young but her older brothers had all gone to university and they could all speak several languages and the universities in egypt had you know you'd go to a chemistry class and the professor was speaking in french You'd go to your biology class and that one was speaking German. So you had to be across all these languages in order to learn. And that's what they knew. You know, you'd go to a shop with one of my uncles and suddenly they'd start speaking Arabic. And you'd, you'd think, where, where did that come from? But they're all quite, you know, prof, pro, proficient in all these languages. So that's that was the sort of upbringing I had and that was what, I was around that a lot. Um, and that's had an effect on me obviously so um so your dna is quite informed <laughs> to allow you to take, rich, yes. to take the mantle of an italian matriarch italian lebanese yeah yeah, yeah. and it's uh, you know it it's a very it's very similar to greek too but it's that very you know uh close family everybody knows everyone's business you know everyone's connected acceleration of food oh my gosh yes yeah. there's a lot of food lots of eating lots of not eating you know, uh, <laughs> trying not to eat, but eating. It's like, you look too skinny, but, you know, here's the food. But, you know, now I'm too full. No, no, you're not full. My dad used to say that his grandmother would tell him, you know, you're hungry. No, I'm not hungry, Grandma. Yes, you are. You're hungry. <laughs> because so, I tell you. Because you I are. tell you you're hungry. So, uh, yeah, there's all that. And that's very much a part of this play. Um, it's a it, comedy, isn't it? It's very much a comedy. Yeah. It's a farce, in fact. And it, 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 it straddles that you know, kind of what we uh, um, recognise as a comedy and the farcical nature of the characters and then farce itself. 
So there's some slapstick in it. There's, it's quite physical. We've had a, a fight director in. Um, we've got choreography. We do a bit of dancing. Um, we have Amy Hack who does a whole jazz solo to a Celine Dion song. <laughs> it's very funny. Uh, and it's, it's really good. Oh, she's great. She's wonderful. But it's also hilarious to watch. Um, yeah, we're having a lot of fun. So it's the story of Joe, a queer millennial Italian-Australian who gets caught up in the passions and politics of ethnic family traditions. Yes, even though he is Italian. Yeah. So even within communities, within culturals, cultures and cultural communities, there are, there's diversity within that. So the story really does celebrate you know, the differences between being Sicilian and being uh, Calabresi and being from Milano and being... You know all the different areas of Italy. Italy only became a, a you know a recognised country it was only recently, like in the last I don't know, I don't know the Italian history, but it's it might be eighty years ago or was sometime very recently, because there were pockets of dialect and pockets of different cultures within an Italian culture, but they weren't Italy as such. So they were like you know like the Greek city states, you know Athens and Sparta and. All the different sort of states were very different. And you notice, you notice that in any culture, you go from one area of Greece to another and they speak a different dialect and you can't really... I remember being in Cyprus and listening to my aunties and trying to converse with them and they speak so fast and the Cypriot Greek is extremely different to the, the mainland Greek. And I, would, I didn't understand her. They had different words for things and you know, different you know, um, pronunciations and it was very, very funny. So we do a little bit of that in... We, we, you know, hit on a bit of that in this play as well. With, uh, with Biblos, uh, which I saw in your fabulous, and Thank obviously you. now with the Italians, um, the queer identity is being presented as well. Yes. In, in these plays and being explored. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very prominent right now, and I think there's a reason for that. I don't think it's just about being gay. I think it's about celebrating the differences between us and celebrating diversity, and also bringing to the fore that concept of being other. And to me, that's what um, uh, queering of any kind of story means. Um, working with Dino Dimitriades, often um, he would, you know, put a queer slant onto lots of different ways of interpreting story and production. And it was a beautiful way to work because it would really explore and expand the whole idea of a production. You know, you would really push the envelope. You know, those boundaries were really, really being pushed. And Stephen Nicholas has done a similar thing with, um, a very beautiful thing with looking for Alibrandi in, in, in a, a similar kind of way, in that, you know, it's not the production you imagine if you've read the book. It's very different. And it's that this is the way we're celebrating difference. You know, look, look at it, not just visually, but conceptually. And, you know, the heart's there, but it's just being... Um, Expand it, which is, I think, is is a glorious thing. Mm. I imagine. Um, well, I imagine. I, I, I would expect <laughs> that being a, an Italian, a Greek, um, a, a Lebanese person in twenty twenty two is a very different experience and um, and uh, and freedom to being that in nineteen sixty two. Yes, yes, very much so. When you my... talk about the, the themes of other, yeah, um, it was certainly other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the time of, of, of huge migration and, uh, of the Greeks and the Italians to Australia. Absolutely. Um, there was a huge influx of migrants in the 60s. 
but my grandparents came out in the 19, early 1900s, 1920, 1918. And I remember my grandfather telling me uh, that he hated the word Dago, which we don't hear now at no, all. No, it's Spanish. But Dago was his, he was, you know, bullied as a child. Um, and they all anglicised their names. My father, my grandfather's name was Constantine, but he was Con. You know, my grandmother's name was <coughs> Vigier, which is my actual Greek name, Vigier, which comes from the word justice, Vigios. Um, but at school, they couldn't say Vigier, so her teacher said, you'll be Daisy, because she said, Vigier, Dikea, Daisy, you'll be Daisy. So they all had anglicised names. Um, to the point where there's friends of ours and that have anglicised their Greek name to Lynch, which is nothing like their Greek name. Mm. You know, you hear stories of people coming off boats, migrant boats, and saying, that's my name there on that boat, on that box, sorry. Um, and that's how they got their name. You know, they often came out with no papers. They might have fled a war-torn area in Asia Minor that had been invaded by whoever um, and had to leave everything. So they'd make things up, they'd reinvent themselves. Um, these days it's a little bit more difficult to do. <laughs> Unless you're an asylum seeker, obviously, and you come out with nothing, but, you know, and that's, that breaks my heart, that we're not as, as a society, we're not as welcoming of our, of our new migrants or our um, people that are seeking help mm. that come to a new country to start a new life. It's, it seemed to be a little bit more generous in the 50s and 60s I think even though they did suffer a lot with bullying and discrimination and and all of that but uh and now we don't need to change our names we can be our original names which is wonderful any sorts of going back to the game the gear well the gear the gear the gear the gear galanou is what it would be galanou. yeah um so the change to Deborah was that um, to establish your career, you wanted no, no, to was, anglicise, or you I grew up born, Deborah? I was born. It's on my birth certificate, right. so my parents called me Je Deborah Justine. It's on my pass passport, everything. So, Mum loved Deborah Carr, who was an actress at the time, and uh, so she called me Deborah. But it was in the you know, kind of after my grandmother, who was Daisy. So, they didn't want to call me Daisy because that was also a made-up name anyway. So they thought, oh, well, we'll call her Deborah. So uh, when I'm in Greece, I, you know, do ask people to call me Dikea because it's my Greek name and Dikea Galanou. And often when they hear Deborah, they go, where, where, that's a Jewish name. How did you get that? So they question it as well. Um, but, yes, yeah, so it would be nice to be Dikea Galanou if I made a career in Greece, maybe. <laughs> that's what I'd have to be, basically. Do you think you would have um, become an actor if you were born in Greece? And oh, I don't know. It's very because were there any artists in the family that? No, I've got distant relatives that are. Uh, Anna Moglalis is a um, an actor in France who's a distant cousin of mine, but not in my immediate family. No, we've got more musicians and a couple of actors, but not. Um, time kind of the Greeks invented the theatre of course I know and I've seen some of my favourite theatre in Greece uh, Epidorus and uh, oh, yeah. or Epidavros and uh, isn't that Epidorus amazing oh, I mean the, the, the speaker's stone there in the middle you can stand there and speak so quietly and it just radiates all around the um, in an open air yeah. facility yeah. so 
the architecture is, is extraordinary. It's amazing. Now, obviously, we're masters at building things for sound. You know, we haven't been able to get the Opera House concert hall <laughs> right. So, in all these years. Um, but they could do it outdoors. I remember doing, I did a thing for the Fringe, Bondi Fringe, many years ago because it was going to be outside in that little Bondi... Um, amphitheatre. Amphitheatre, which I don't, I don't think exists anymore. But yes. I wanted to work outside to see what it was like. It was hard. It was really hard. And it was an amphitheatre, so you'd think that it was built in a way that would carry your voice. No, it didn't. I was yelling the whole time. But, you know, but it was a really good lesson in how to perform outdoors. But in Greece, you don't have to do that. Those theatres are built, as you say, for voice. It's great. Really, really good. I saw some beautiful stuff there when I was there last... 2019? Gorgeous, gorgeous theatre. So what drew you to the arts? As a kid, were you um, performing... Was there a drama contingent at school or community theatre? I did have aunties and cousins that were speech and drama teachers. And so, because they were in our family, we know everyone did speech and drama with our cousins and we'd do it before school. And um, so, I, you know, went through and did all my exams and we had a Steadfords. And uh, getting up to, you know do a Judith Wright poem or something in an Estedford by myself on stage in a competitive sphere was probably the scariest thing I think I've ever done. Harder than doing a play because you've got your cast around you and you've got everyone to carry you through. But being on stage by yourself, I would be so scared. I would feel that adrenaline in my mouth almost vomiting. So, um, but I, I sort of really loved that fear <laughs> I thought gosh it was the kind of thing if I can get through this if I can do this and win and I often would do it to win so I could you know win money and stuff and trophies and things and um, I thought if I can do this I can do anything so it was a, a kind of a, a really early bug that I caught um, uh, Angela Bishop and I used to compete against each other um, Lisa Hensley and I were also in in Steadfords together so uh, yeah it was a wonderful way to start and so I did all my grade exams and through that I we used to do you know excerpts from Pygmalion and you know lots of Shakespeare and uh, as well as poetry so I we had to learn the, and study and read the plays and I just really enjoyed it I love that idea of, of falling into a character and the empathy that you had to have to understand the way someone's mind works and why they make certain choices and I sort of got off on that and uh, but then again you know I remember being about seven and knowing that I wanted to be an actor but it, I kept it very quiet because it was kind of embarrassing so when I left school I um, applied and did law and uh, arts at Sydney University because it was a much more respected thing to do but while I was there of course I met Penny Gay in the English Literature Department and she's you know Australia's foremost authority on Shakespearean women and in Shakespeare little did I know that she was Virginia Gay's mum um, but she got us up she you know said any volunteers well, at that stage, she probably didn't she, well, she, she didn't know either no. <laughs> <laughs> well she had she, had Virginia, Virginia existed but she, she did didn't that's right she yes, wasn't an actor yes. then but, um, you know, Penny would ask any volunteers to come and do some scene work, we'll present it to the year, to, you know, in the Wallace Wing at, at 
or whatever it was, the Wallace Theatre actually, which is where we had a lot of our English lectures. And so I would, you know, put up my hand and we did Twelfth Night, we did a whole lot of things. And it, I really caught the bug then too because she was a wonderful director and she understood the language of Shakespeare and, and everything about her was just gorgeous. Um, she was a wonderful um, teacher. So I did three years of that and then I took a year off and uh, thought I'll just, just, you know, do 12 months of just drama out there and find a little course to do and go and do some um, extra work on film sets and, and TV shows and stuff. And so I was watching, you know, I was in a show called, I think it was an extra for on For Love Alone where, where Helen Bidet was the main character and I was just watching everybody how they operated. I, I um, was on a film with um, Leo McKern, who I then worked with many years later, and I was an extra in that, and just observing and watching how things operated, and I quite liked it. So at the end of that year, I auditioned for NIDA and got in, and the rest is history. <laughs> the rest is history. Did your folks approve of this choice no. to, to finish law <laughs> and become an actor? No, they wanted me to go back to uni. Um, I had said to them, Oh, look, I got into NIDA and I remember my dad dad saying to me, oh, well, you've proved to yourself that you're as good as, you know, the others that applied. And because in those days, I don't know what they do now, but that um, there was something like close to 2,000 people that had auditioned for one year, which is extraordinary. And they only took 20 of us. And I remember saying to dad, oh, look, I'll just audition and see how I go, you know. And then when I got in, he said, well, you know, you've done it now, you can go back to uni. I went, no, I actually want to go to NIDA. And he said, what do you What do you mean? You want to be an actress? It's like akin to being, I don't know, a prostitute or something. It's just really not the thing to do. Um, and I said, actually, yeah, no, I want, to, I want to go to NIDA. And look, you know, I can teach when I finish, you know. Um, and uh, it was full on. He could see, he saw how hard we worked, like, you know, how difficult it was. It was pretty much a 24-7 commitment. Um, we were there because we were in the old buildings, luckily for the first year, and then the new building opened across the road. But especially in that first year, we were still at, you know, on site at one and two in the morning, developing things and rehearsing, and because we had, we developed our own little projects and we were encouraged to do that and scene work and all that sort of stuff. So we were there a lot. I mean, the designers, I remember, they used to sleep in the classroom under desks and things because they worked so hard. Uh, it was full on, so he could see how how hard working all of us were. And I think he, I think he admired that, but yeah, so he, he sort of, he sort of sat back a bit and didn't criticize too much, but, um, and we had some wonderful tutors. We had, you know, Nick Enright, um, Gail Edwards, um, some people from the US that came over. Our second year at NIDA was like, uh, a lot of it, were, we were a bit like performing seals because we were, you know, the Queen would come through the new building or some, you know, big dignitary from China or from some, and we'd have to put on a little show and, uh, you know, at, at a, a moment's notice, you know, someone's coming in tomorrow, we're gonna reel out, you know, Kamina Barana and we have to sing for, for them. And that was kind of fun, but a bit disruptive. To our, it was a disruption to our work, but it was it was a wonderful thing to know that we could just pull something out and here we are, here we are, the students of NIDA, and this is what we do. And they come through the classrooms and you know have a little look and keep walking, and we were pretty we were very much on the show. 
which is not the experience that you get at WAPA, where you're sort of cloistered away and you can actually... When you're over the other side of the country, away yeah. from, uh, you know, all of the agents and yeah, which is production a really houses. and wonderful thing because you can fail gloriously and not have to worry about it, you know, and just push yourself. But at night there was, there was pressure, I think. Mm. And at WAPA we had the best beaches in Australia. Well... <laughs> Which That's was, true. Which is good. I don't know if Sydney cider would, would agree with you, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, you have some great beaches over there. Um, growing up, were you bilingual? Were you speaking Greek at home? And Yeah. yeah. Um, my parents spoke to me only in Greek until I went to school. Having said that, I lost a lot of the Greek once I got to school. I had to you know, learn English and uh, then I studied it as part of my um, high school subjects. I went to that Saturday school, Saturday community school, language school, and did it for my HSC. Um, but unless you're speaking it every day, you do, it's like, you know, it's like a muscle, it's, it's habit. So you lose a lot of your vocab unless you're dealing with it every day. So I would speak to my grandmother in Greek if I could, or our local priest, who was like an uncle to us, and try and speak to him in Greek. And, um, and I carried the Greek through more than my brother and sister, I think, because I did it for the HSC. Uh, and then when I got to uni, and I chose it as a subject as part of my arts degree, because my written work was good, because I could think in, and my, you know, I was a good English student, so I could think in English and translate into Greek, and my HSC results were quite good. They put me in the A class. And I remember going to the professor, our two professors who were English, actually, Professor Vincent and Professor Alfred, I think was the other one. Uh, and I said, I can't cope in this class. They're all from Greece. You're talking about people that have lived all their life in Greece, had studied at, you know, the University in Athens and had come out to Australia to further their studies. And they're doing modern Greek because they wanted to lift their credit points. I mean, it's walk in the park for them. But to hear them speak in class, I just could not keep up. They were so fast. It's like watching the news, the Greek news. I just can't have to tape it and slow it down and listen to it back because they're so good half speed yeah exactly but yeah it was good to have another language and every time i do something like you know a play in italian or, or something that's you know like the lebanese i try and pick up some words and and try and expand my you know knowledge of languages and well at drama that. school at nida you're being exposed to a whole range of classic and uh, contemporary texts um, apart from uh, you know the, the ancient Greek theatre of Sophocles and Euripides and and perhaps a Midsummer Night's Dream, was there much other um, uh, drama uh, exploring the Greek experience that you were able to uh, to latch onto? Not so much at drama school, because it was a broad education and the way NIDA operated, which I look back at very fondly, um, they. Even though we had Stanislavski was the basis of all our learning, they introduced a lot of different techniques and tools. So, from a lot of different, you know, with sort of the whole um, actors centre overseas in the US and, you know, lots of different ways of working, we didn't really have time to explore the Greek history of theatre. Um, I remember doing something in, I think it was second year with. Tony Knight and um, he asked me to do something in the flavour of being Greek so it was a Greek character but uh, apart from my audition getting into NIDA which at the time 
they'd never do this, but uh, we had something like, I think it was Good Morning Australia or someone, in, it was Kerry Ann's show at the time. They came in to film us and it happened to be the day that I was auditioning and John Clark was there to run the auditions, of course, because it was, you know, on national tele- television. And I was doing a piece from St. Joan, I was doing Bernard Shaw, and um, they were filming me. There was no, just no, um, you know, contract that we signed or anything for this kind of thing. But um, he then, in the middle of the audition, he said, now Deb, uh, yeah, just do it in Greek. And so I had to just speak in Greek and I was making up words because I didn't quite know how to, you know, express myself in Greek. So I was just sort of making things up and apparently he loved that and that was what got me into the, the school. But I think that may have been the last time I spoke Greek <laughs> at NIDA, unless it was in a, in a devised piece, but yeah. It's funny how they throw those curly ones. I remember auditioning with Edmund for NIDA from, from oh. King Lear and I was told to do it as a bullfrog. But I suppose it's just a ploy to get you out of your head. Yeah, and um, absolutely embrace absolutely. approach. It does. It really lightens you. I remember reading the, the little notes that Betty Williams, our dearly departed voice teacher at the time, had written about me and my audition. And one thing she had said was, oh, you know, two speech and drama, which I got knocked out of me in the three years that I was there. Um, but when I did this piece, she was like, oh, you know, the lights suddenly went on and there was spark in her eyes and stuff like that she'd written. So that was really lovely to see. Um, and there is something about speaking your native tongue, although I would say that English is my native tongue, but something that's ancestral, it's, you know, in your DNA um, and generational. It does sort of access stuff in you that you probably don't, aren't aware of unless you, you try. Were there many ethnicities in the student body at that time? Any other, any Angelo other? D'Angelo and I, he was right. the Italian, I was the Greek, so we were the two token wogs, I, I guess. That was about it. Um, in uh, third year, there was um, an Italian girl who now works at NIDA in the corporate. She's got twins, I can't remember her name now, I can see her face. Uh, not many at all. You'll, you'll be graduate. You would be have been graduating into an industry that had not yet really, well, hadn't embraced diversity or indeed colourblind casting. Were you concerned about where your work was going to be? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I had been told all the way through that, oh, you know, you'll get work. You're a wonderful actor. Blah blah blah. As I got out into the industry, I'd go to auditions, and there, and not not that there's anything wrong with being blonde and blue eyed, but I would go into an audition room in the waiting room and there were you know beautiful blonde haired blue eyed girls that would get roles over me um to the point where there was a there was a a role that i'm working with tony polly right now he's a dear friend of mine and uh, we both got a role each on a show for the abc uh playing husband and wife and he'd been in, in in the industry a few years before me and he'd waited to get a guestie on this particular show uh, and the reason he said yes was because it was our last name was Grogan. Kim and someone Grogan, I remember. Um, and then we were so excited being both Europeans and we looked European, I thought. We walked into the first read, sat down, and the producer came up to us at the end of the first read and said, now we're just going to change your names to Eleanor and somebody other... 
and it was I can't even remember the last name and he and I were so disappointed he rang his agent and he was like oh get me out of this this is not what we signed up for and the whole reason we're doing this is because it was a bit of colorblind casting mm-hmm. um but we couldn't get out of it and uh and so we we played the roles and you know we had a great time but it was a bit disappointing that they saw us and went oh no well, well you know they need to have ethnic names um so in that at that time, it was exciting to not play an ethnic character because you thought that that's the only way to get cast mm-hmm. in things. I um, suppose the, the Australian public had really only seen on television's characters like Aldo Godopoulos in Number 96 and, um, and Lex Marinos' yeah. character in uh, Kingswood Country. Well, Lex and I are friends and he told me the story about how when he went to, went to do Kingswood Country and he told the producers, look, you know, this is the way I speak and I am of European background. Why does he have to have an accent? And he fought them because they wanted him to speak a like a this, you know. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. You can, you know, basically said you can fire me. or And so that's how he played the character was with this very Aussie, Broad, t- Aussie yeah. accent. Yeah. Which is groundbreaking at the time. And added to the comedy, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. people went, oh, my God, he's so... It wasn't a cheap laugh. It, yeah. was, it was earned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a wonderful actor, and he really fought hard for that kind of thing. And that you know, that's we owe they you know we stand on those actors' shoulders for things that they they uh, were able to do for us. But um, so, what sort of roles were you getting? You were Heartbreak High, I believe, or Heartbreak Kid. Heartbreak Kid. So that was a Greek role or Greek background. Christina Pappas, the teacher. Uh, I did that for two different companies. So I worked with the ensemble, and we we did that for. We had a couple of seasons, I think, for the ensemble, and then we toured it. And then for another smaller company that toured around Orange and sort of Western New South Wales. It's, a, it's an amazing um, story, isn't it? The uh, the arc of where that's travelled to now appearing on Netflix as a uh, a rebooted series. Well, yeah, all, all stemming from that that wonderful play, what Five Hander or something, Heartbreak Kid. Heartbreak Kid, yeah, it was yeah. a five and very funny, very very funny. It what what's on now, the Heartbreak High. That show is, a, is you know, worlds away from the from the play, from the original play, and it's wonderful. What they're doing is it's an extraordinary piece of television, but um, it's very very different from the play. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a great experience to do that. But I wasn't. I don't think I was ethnic enough to be on the original Heartbreak High. I remember going for an audition and um, then seeing some wonderful actors who were friends of mine who then got the roles and they were much more European-looking than I was. So then there was this sort of double-edged sword where I was Greek background, you know, European background, where I wasn't quite... I didn't quite look enough to satisfy producers for for those roles. Uh, And, you know, I was trying to anglicise myself too. I was straightening my hair, you know, um, you know, wearing my makeup in a certain way and acting in a certain way and so... You know, I was not embracing the Greek in me at the time because I thought that was going to get me more work. Um, I remember being in the in the UK and I got an agent over there and I we had talked about moving there and staying there and I assimilated while I was there. I was only there for a few months, but you know, picked up the very English accent and walked into you know I was there at the BBC and went to the National Theatre for a couple of auditions and meetings with producers and things and and directors and they had no idea that I was Australian 
So um, because I wanted to assimilate in order to get work. So now, you know, you go to the US and it's like, oh, you Aussies are fantastic, you know. So it, there's a real surge of embracing the different cultures, which is great. But we didn't have that then. <laughs> Another role you excel at is... Uh being mum to four lovely children. Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know if I excel at it. <laughs> Most mothers will tell you we fail every day. Did that mean a bit of a hiatus to your career? Yeah. As you concentrated on family? Yeah. I mean, my kids range from 26 to 15. And it was different with each one of them in terms of work. So with Jordan, I was on the set for um, uh, Children's Hospital. And he had his first birthday on the set. And I was also pregnant with Bailey while I was working on that. And uh, no one knew till we finished the season. Um, but I remember my mother ringing me. I was, you know, dropping Jordan off at my parents in the morning at 5.30 in the morning because I insisted that he slept at home. And then I'd get back at sort of 6.30 at night and I'd miss the whole day with him. And during the day if I had a break, I'd, I'd ring mum and how's he going? What's he doing? And one day she was on the phone with me. She said, oh, oh, oh my God. Oh, he's walking. And I'll never forget that feeling. And I thought, all right, that's it. I can't, I can't work while they're at this age until they get to school. You know, I want to be able to be around for all their milestones. And, um, and then, of course, with the boys, my older two boys, you know, I was running to daycare <laughs> the moment they could be enrolled because they were driving me nuts. But they were gorgeous. But they were so energetic, you know. Um, so by the time they were two, they were enrolled at, at daycare for a couple of days a week and then they went to preschool. With Allegra, she was so gorgeous that I didn't have her in preschool at all because she was so lovely to have around. You know, we, finally I could go and have a coffee in a coffee shop with a child and not have them run around and, you know, turn tables upside down and <laughs> knock over chairs and run into people. So we'd sit and have, you know, she'd have her baby Chino and i have my cappuccino and... I could go shopping with her and she wouldn't tear things off shelves like the boys would. Um, and then Cooper, the fourth, was, you know, he would be in the chair, in his high chair, and he'd fall asleep in the chair because I'd forget that he was there. <laughs> and I'd be doing housework or whatever, and I'd go back and the poor kids asleep in the high chair strapped in. Um, but I tried not to work too much when they were little um, because you do, you miss, you miss stuff. But as a result, my career's had this sort of very you know, um, stop-start thing. Did motherhood, um, do you think it's changed you as an actor? Did it extend your palette in I think it's way? made me a better actor. Mm. Uh, a colleague of mine had said that to me once and I didn't believe him and I realise now how, how right he was. Um, it, you know, expands your empathy. It, it really enables you to learn how to juggle, <laughs> which you do as mothers... Anyway, but juggling lots of things, you know, you can be multitasking and yet concentrating. So, you know, learning lines, I don't think I've been, I've become any better at. In fact, I've become worse at it as we get older. But other things, being able to see what's going on with other characters and be able to see what's going on in another scene and how that might inform yours and what's happening with the story in a greater sphere, not necessarily as in it from a directorial eye, but as an, as an actor within a greater story, I think, yeah, as a, as a mother it does. And it also puts things in perspective, you know. We're not, we're not, it's not rocket science. We're not changing 
we are changing people's lives in terms of storytelling, but you know, life is the most important thing. Your health is the most important thing. You know, should anything go wrong, this whole thing of, you know, the show must go on. Yes, to a certain extent, but that's not what it's like anymore. We don't do that. We don't kill ourselves for our work, and neither should we. Well, you've re-entered the industry with uh, full steam ahead with shows like uh, Stop Girl and Boom Cack Panto at uh, at Belvoir Street, Bonnie and Clyde at the Hayes, Wicked Sisters, and and recently, uh, tell me, I'm I'm here at the at, at Belvoir. The, at the Belvoir, um, you don't seem to have stopped working. It's I mean, been it's been a very busy couple of years. What do you put that down to? I don't know how to say no. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, work begets work. I think um, I like I like working, and I like uh, working with people that stimulate me, and um, and I like challenging myself. So Bonnie and Clyde was my first official uh, musical, my first show at the Hayes and I was in awe of that cast just around these beautiful voices uh, incredible music theatre uh, performers uh, so I felt very much out of my depth with them they were wonderful I was just part of the ensemble in terms of singing but I had some dramatic scenes which they kept saying were wonderful so they were sort of learning from me and I was learning from them from a music sense um, and Stop Girl, again, I'd worked on the development of that script and that's how I ended up being in the show. Uh, Boomcack, I hounded Virginia and Richard for an audition and um, lied about uh, being able to play the saxophone. Allegra plays the saxophone, so I used her instrument and I went to her, her saxophone teacher and within, once I knew that I had the audition, I learnt a song there's that skills from writer coming in the queen's coming quickly <laughs> that's it Come in and learn this that's quickly. it yeah. so i learnt the saxophone i learned a song on the saxophone to play for the audition um and then unfortunately we didn't use it in the in the show but it was to show them that i could play keyboard because it's my background uh played keyboard and saxophone and sang for them so um multitasking again uh and um tell me i'm here again i hounded Letitia and Belvoir for an audition because I, I grew up in Huddersfield with uh, the Blaine family for a couple of years. I knew Georgia at school, the, the daughter, and my sister was in Joshua's class. And uh, we didn't know Jonathan. I, I mean, I don't, have any, I don't have any memory of Jonathan, who was the eldest son that had schizophrenia. And we'd met Anne, obviously, and they lived not far from me. I, even, I think I went to the house maybe once, but... Um, and read the book and I was enamoured with that whole story uh, and a mother's journey through a son's illness and how it affects the family. And I don't, I don't worry about what role. That's the other thing that I do that seems to be something that I do is that I don't worry about being you know, the star or the main role or anything. I like being involved in, in, a, in the entire story. So I love ensemble work and I love... In Tell Me I'm Here, I think by the time we put it on stage, I had been cut down to about 12 characters. I think when we when I first signed on, there was something like 17 or 18 characters that, that I was playing. Um, and I love that because it's sort of little bits of this and supporting everybody else on stage. And I love doing that. Um, 
Nadine was extraordinary as Anne Deverson and Tom Conroy was extraordinary as Jonathan and they were the only two actors playing just that role. Everyone else was multitasking, you know, playing multi-characters and it was a wonderful experience. It was hard, it was challenging, it was physically challenging, but it was an extraordinary experience. I, I, I love that part, that style of theatre where it's devised and it's, you know, what they're doing at the moment with Jungle and the Seas. I wish I was Sri Lankan <laughs> to be part of that because it's based on the story of Antigone and Mahabharata, so, which I had seen in Adelaide many, many years ago when I was at NIDA and we, I stayed up for the whole 12 hours and watched it from beginning to end, just completely glued to it, the Peter Hall production. It was just, I love that stuff. Um, and when they did, you know, the rep season, when they did uh, the Carol Churchill and Wayside Bride, you know, would have loved to have done that. And I saw that and was sitting on the edge of my seat the whole time. I just loved that kind of theatre. So, um, yeah, I was just, I've been lucky, but I also, I'm uh, proactive about, about, you know, talking to people about things that I'm keen on and I'm interested in and, and think that I can help contribute to. It must have been exciting visiting an American classic with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and playing that iconic role of Martha. But you did it with a team of Greek actors. Did you approach that play with a Greek perspective? Kind of, yes. Um, Nicholas Papadimitro and I are old mates and old colleagues and he and I did this as, a, as an independent uh, production. We produced it ourselves. We lost money on it but we didn't care because it was a huge learning curve playing that role in that play, just doing... It would all be, uh, and we went back to the original te text, not the one that he updated in 2005, um, because we thought it was better, because he'd left out a wonderful scene with um, George and Honey at the end of uh, Act One, I think it was, when she comes back from the bathroom. He'd left that out, and we thought that was a brilliant scene, and we had Adele Carroll. She wasn't Greek, but she was extraordinary, Honey. Um, Christian Caruso was the was Nick, and uh, Nico and I played. Uh, George and Martha and we thought there was a kind of you know George and Martha are Greek names they they could be academics in the Athens University and you know um, and they were roles that we always wanted to play and we knew no one would cast us so we did it ourselves and I learnt so much on that production it was like being in drama school for three years you literally get on that train as you open the door going back to the house after the party you know what a dump is the opening line and then by the end of it you just you can't think you just have to keep going it's it was the most extraordinary experience you you talk about you know being roles that you would never be cast in that was about 10 years ago was it no not quite not even quite 10 years no what's well, interesting because in the last last couple of years we had that um, production with an indigenous cast come out of South Australian Theatre Company yes yeah. With um, Susan Pryor as Martha, I didn't yeah. see it because I was working. I would yeah. love to have seen it. Susan was the only non-indigenous person in it. Um, apparently, it was wonderful. Uh, so the, the industry has come a long way in a, in oh, a relatively has. short time. Well, when Edward Albee was alive, that production would never have been approved because right. he even had to approve our our headshots. He, they did research on us. We had to be approved as casting before we got the license for it. Um, what can you tell from a headshot? Well, I don't know. But he's got, he had our headshots, he was had our CVs. Was it your old headshot that I'm using for yeah, the promo? Yeah, I think so. Or maybe it was a shot from another production where I, 
looked a little bit more Greek. I don't know. It was weird. We had to, we had to wait for his approval. Right. So he had casting approval. I mean, at the time, I think maybe eighteen months before we actually did our show, there was a show in the US with a, with a black actor that he pulled off. Yes, like I remember just, that. Yeah. yeah. And now, well, he he died while we were doing the show. Right. Uh, in the September that we we were on stage, actually. So it was only about six or seven years ago. But um, yeah, now it's you can't do that. But he was adamant about the way his plays were being As is done. the Samuel Beckett Foundation too. Yeah. Yes. And uh, the O'Neills, I think, is that right? Mm. Eugene O'Neill. And um, there's another one who's really, yeah, you can't change a word. Well, it's important to one of the playwright's intention, isn't it? And yeah, um, absolutely. you'll be honouring Danny Ball's intention. Absolutely. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, yes. But it's very collaborative too. If yeah, we want to yeah. change something or we think something works better, then we sort of approach him and we have a little discussion about it. And we do it and we try it and see. What's your character name? Giovanna. 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 So she's very funny. They're all very, very funny. Well, the Italian's playing um, Belvoir Downstairs Theatre from 23rd of October to the 6th of November. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to see it. It's a lot of fun. We have, I think, four or five shows are are already sold out. And there's only 15, I think, all up. So, um, better hurry and get your tickets. Yeah, bookings at belvoir.com.au. Thank you, Deb. It's been really lovely to uh, to catch up with uh, Deb the actor as opposed to Deb the mum. I know in, <laughs> I know in another life. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We have uh, multiple roles that we play yeah. every day, yeah. different hats that we wear. Indeed. Thanks, Deb. Thank you. Another fascinating conversation exploring a career on stages and screen. Thank you to my guest today, Deb Galanos. And thanks for the croissants, Deb. They were delicious. Deborah Galanos is now appearing in Danny Bull's The Italians, playing in the 25A season at Belvoir Theatre. The play is directed by Riley Spadaro and features Will Bartolo, Philip D'Ambrosio, Amy Hack, Jonathan Lagudi, Emma O'Sullivan, Tony Poli, and Brandon Skane. Bookings at www.belvoir.com.au. Thanks for joining us in this episode. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe. And I'll catch you next time on Stages.